And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, as usual, Darren Kaster. I am sitting in studio once again with both Kevin Farmer and Stefan Hostetter. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hey, everyone. Uh, well, aside from uh, many uh, other reminders, uh, remind me that we need to get uh, uh, at least one woman on the show sometime soon. You should get one woman on the show sometime soon. Thank you, Stefan. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm too old to change. <laughs> Uh, we have a, a few clips on today's show. Uh, we uh, we were hoping actually to have a, a, an interview um, uh, that uh, that we recorded earlier in the week, but for for technical and time reasons, I was not able to get it uh, uh, produced in time. So we still have a fun show, uh, but so I'm going to tell you what that is. Um, but I'm also going to ask Kevin in just a second to to jump in and tell us what we will be listening to for sure next week because it was a very fascinating conversation. Uh, so what we will be listening to this week is I actually went back um, and dug up. Um, because I think it was about time we hadn't played it in a long time, and it, it's 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 something that's worthy to check in with every once in a while and, and sort of uh, use it as a, a barometer for sort of where we're at now, which is the uh, the original Severn Suzuki uh, speech clip, which is uh, David Suzuki's daughter when she was, I believe, 13, she, either 12 or 13, she, she says in the clip, uh, at the Rio Summit from 1992, the, the Rio Earth Summit from 1992. We're going to listen to that and have a, a couple of comments about that. Uh, and then also, uh, much more recently, actually from, uh, I believe it was uh, mid-December of last year, so just uh, just over a month ago, uh, was a clip of Elizabeth May during uh, Christian uh, Christian period, or rather it's called the adjournment proceedings, uh, where she's challenging uh, someone from, uh, sorry, Kevin, you reminded me the, the gentleman's name. Well, if we're talking about the same clip, because I haven't it seen is, yes, ta- yes. Okay, um, if we're talking about exactly the same thing, she's, uh, she's, she's uh, um, a- addressing conservative talking points, which are being fielded in the clip by the parliamentary secretary to the minister of the environment, Colin Carey. No, the, the parliamentary secretary's name is Colin Carey. The minister of, of the environment is, is currently Leona Gluka. And he, he, the parliamentary secretary, is fielding these questions from Elizabeth May. Or, yes. you know, n- not fielding them in any credible way, but kind of, <laughs> you know, making words, making sounds in in between her comments. <laughs> well, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're going to do that. Uh, they don't actually mention his name in the clip, which I which I thought was interesting. They just address him by his by his title. But anyway, so that's something much more recent. And and I, and we're going to uh, just analyze the the the, the back and forth uh, and the difference of styles, shall we say, and and maybe uh, try and boil out maybe who's who's uh, being more genuine and maybe who isn't. Uh, I'm sure you'll be shocked by the answer to that. Uh, but then we're also going to come back and and as was suggested by uh, a listener actually uh, who I think. I, I probably have permission to say his fake Twitter handle name, uh, at the very least, without uh, being concerned for his privacy, which is the man with no name, which doesn't tell you much. Uh, but uh, I'd already wanted to talk about this uh, a little bit last week because it's been coming up on my Facebook and social media feeds. Um, but he uh, sent the request because apparently somebody from the Canadian Taxpayer Federation, which sounds very citizen-minded and concerned and, and you know, grassroots, doesn't it, Stephen? Um uh, had actually a spot on last night's uh, the show The Agenda with Steve Pagan called Carbon Commitments. Uh, one of the three guests was from this group. Uh, another one is someone uh, I'm uh, familiar with uh, because of his work uh, with uh, Citizens Climate Lobby. He was actually at an event with Citizens Climate Lobby that I was at this week, so it was kind of neat to see that he was on this show. Uh, again, we didn't get to see the show, so I don't have any clips from the show, but we just want to sort of talk about their their role in that conversation, so we'll wrap that up. Uh, however, before we move on to the, the first clip, which we're going to play the, the Severn Suzuki uh, clip from Rio 92, Kevin, if you just want to uh, preview what will uh, assuredly be next week, Weeks, uh, feature with uh, Dr. F- uh, Dr. Foote. Profe- Professor David Foote. Um, uh, yeah, uh, so, you know, the, the, a perennial discussion 
in environmental issues is is population, and uh, in particular, you know, at what point does population exceed the carrying capacity of the earth? Um, obviously, when we talk when we talk about population, we have to always be careful about whether we're talking about, you know, just the gross numbers of people versus who's who who has what size of footprint. Um, and and uh, so, and, but but anyway, just as a just as a broad metric, population factors into this discussion, even though some of us mainly those of us listening to this show, uh, way over-consume the planet uh, relative to billions of other people who don't. But, but writ large, population is an important metric. And, uh, and you know, for the most part, people have, the, the UN has, been, has always published population projections. And they've, over the years, they've, they've been fairly consistent at predicting that population on Earth would, would stabilize around mid-century at the 9 billion or so mark. And that's that's been fairly consistent for several years until recently, uh, a new study came out using um, demonstrably better statistical methodology that that projects that population will not stabilize even not not only will it not stabilize at mid-century this century it won't it'll continue to grow right through till the end of this century so it won't stabilize at all on you know what 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 is like sort of the 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 most the most realistic horizon you can use a hundred years. Like no one's gonna, no one's going to project anything further than that. Um, so anyway, so with bath- with with sort of demonstrably better methodology, they get a much different projection. Uh, there's certainly when you're talking about the carrying capacity of the Earth divided over, you know, taking a footprint and just dividing it by some number of billions of people, uh, twelve billion or so, which is which is the new estimate. The estimate could be like by the end of this century, we could have 12, 12 billion or so people on on the planet. So obviously that's quite a bit different from nine billion. Even and 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 um, I was just fortunate to be able to get in touch with a professor from from U of T that I took a course from. He's an economist and a demographer, a noted demographer, um, David Foote, who people might know as the author, among many other things, of a, a very well known book called Boom Bust and Echo. Uh, I just had the, the great fortune of taking a course from him, and he doesn't remember me, of course, who would, but but uh, but he agreed to do an interview with us about this study and about population in general. And uh, yeah, I'm really I'm really looking forward to it. It's a very important discussion. And uh, typically, like like every lecture I had with him, uh, although this wasn't a lecture, uh, I did learn something, and I, I was, I was re- very glad that we did this, and I was really happy he did it. And I think I think uh, I think if I'm still learning stuff on this topic, I think. A lot of people will find will find this interesting as well. Yeah, well, he de- it's a, it, as you said, it's a definitely an important and relevant topic to uh, uh, discussing the environment. Of course, uh, Stefan will remember that we had a conversation about, about population a little while ago. Yeah, we brought in a ringer though. Uh, it was a great discussion, and we can look forward to that uh, uh, next week once I have a little bit more time to work on it. Uh, but without further ado, we're going to go to the the first clip here. So for a little bit of a throwback, again, we're going to listen to. Uh, um, Severn Kuli Suzuki, who is David Suzuki's daughter, when she was, I believe, 13, speaking at the Rio Summit from 1992. It's about eight minutes. We're going to listen to it, and we're going to come back and talk about it for a minute. Hello, I'm Severn Suzuki, speaking for ECHO, the Environmental Children's Organization. We're a group of 12- and 13-year-olds trying to make a difference. Vanessa Setti... Morgan Geisler, Michelle Quigg, and me. We've raised all the money to come here ourselves, to come 5,000 miles to tell you adults you must change your ways. Coming up here today, I have no hidden agenda. I am fighting for my future. Losing my future is not like losing an election or a few points on the stock market. 
I am here to speak for all generations to come. I am here to spe speak on behalf of the starving children around the world whose cries go unheard. I am here to speak for the countless animals dying across this planet because they have nowhere left to go. I am afraid to go out in the sun now because of the holes in our ozone. I am afraid to breathe the air because I don't know what chemicals are in it. I used, to go in, I used to go fishing in Vancouver, my home, with my dad, until just a few years ago, we found the fish full of cancers. And now we hear of animals and plants going extinct every day, vanishing forever. In my life, I have dreamt of seeing the great herds of wild animals, jungles and rainforests full of birds and butterflies but now I wonder if they will even exist for my children to see. Did you have to worry of these things when you were my age? All this is happening before our eyes and yet we act as if we have all the time we want and all the solutions. I'm only a child and I don't have all the solutions. But I, know, I want you to realize, neither do you. You don't know how to fix the holes in our ozone layer. You don't know how to bring the salmon back up in a dead stream. You don't know how to bring back an animal now extinct. And you can't bring back the forest that once grew where there is now a desert. If you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. Here, you may be delegates of your government, business people, organizers, reporters, or politicians, but really, your mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers, aunts and uncles, and all of you are someone's child. I'm only a child, yet I know we are all part of a family, five billion strong. In fact, 30 million species strong and borders and governments will never change that. I'm only a child, yet I know we are all in this together and should act as one single world towards one single goal. In, in my anger, I am not blind, and in my fear, I am not afraid of telling the world how I feel. In my country, we make so much waste. We buy and throw away, buy and throw away, buy and throw away, and yet northern countries will not share with the needy. Even when we have more than enough, we are afraid to share. We are afraid to let go of some of our wealth. In Canada, we live the privileged life with plenty of food, water, and shelter. We have watches, bicycles, computers, and television sets. The list could go on for two days. Two days ago here in Brazil, we were shocked when we spent time with some children living on the streets. This is what one child told us. I wish I was rich. And if I were, I would give all the street children food, clothes, medicines, shelter, and love and affection. If a child on the streets who has nothing is willing to share, why are we who have everything still so greedy? I can't stop thinking that these are children my own age, that it makes a tremendous difference where you are born.
that I could be one of those children living in the favelas of Rio. I could be a child starving in Somalia, or a victim of war in the Middle East, or a beggar in India. I am only a child, yet I know if all the money spent on war was spent on finding environmental answers, ending poverty, and finding treaties, what a wonderful place this earth would be. At school, even in kindergarten, you teach us how to behave in the world. You teach us to not to fight with others, to work things out, to respect others, to clean up our mess, not to hurt other creatures, to share, not be greedy. Then why do you go out and do the, uh, do the things you tell us not to do? Do not forget why you are attending these conferences, who you're doing this for. We are your own children. You are deciding what kind of a world we are growing up in. Parents should be able to comfort their children by saying, everything's going to be all right. It's not the end of the world, and we're, and we're doing the best we can. But I don't think you can say that to us anymore. Are we even on your list of priorities? My dad always says, you are what you do, not what you say. Well, what you do makes me cry at night. You grown-ups say you love us. But I challenge you, please, make your actions reflect your words. Thank you. All right, and we're back. So the, there's some some questions from some world uh, leaders uh, there that comes in, and, and it was somewhat interesting. But you can you can go online and, and listen to that uh, easily. Again, that was uh, Severin Kuli Suzuki, who is uh, the daughter of David Suzuki, back in 1992. Um, as you were commenting uh, while it was playing, uh, it's uh, very emotional. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of uh, appeals to sort of inherent value of nature and, and something that as somebody who largely agrees with her worldview, largely, um, I found it very powerful and moving. But at the same point, as somebody who also uh, tries to engage outside of simply the environment community and, and the purpose of the, the, the reason why we, we take time out of our, our week every week to do this as volunteers and do the show is because we understand that these sorts of values cannot stay within the environmental community and, and we have problems that need to be dealt with. And, and so that's kind of not good enough. And so your comment, you, you, you uh, made them as like emotional appeals, somewhat jokingly, derisively, mm -hmm. uh, because of the, the implication, I'm assuming, that, that you don't think that will fly with the people whose minds we need to change. Do you want to? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I actually more said it does more because I just personally have I understand, and so it was like, okay, this is what's going to happen. I, I agree with you. Now let's move forward. Uh, I think is I think I think what's interesting about this is it comes very much from the the sort of you know when you're getting in an argument with someone, and the very first thing you do is okay, I'm just going to tell you why I care about this. 
uh, and then that ends up being a very interesting, a very conversation, very similar to what we just heard, which is basically like, this is really important. I don't understand why you don't care about this. Hmm. And then when the when the uh, when some often they inevitably end up being like ignoring you because that doesn't change their minds. Then you have to find another way to talk to them. And I feel like in 1992, the environmental community was still stuck on the this is why we care about this. We presume everyone else will follow in this one. Uh, and then the world very, very, very much didn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, and then, and then, and which then, which then has led us to sort of environmentalists losing faith in the international community, basically to this extent, uh, which I think is, you know, rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so, it, so it was one of those things where it's like in 1992, in the, in the, in the context of it was that I'm sure that inspired a ton of people. And I, it, 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 that really, that kind of speech comes back to when, when I, whenever I think about sort of the value of, these kind of talks is is the real value whether or not the people in the room are actually going to change their mind because of that speech or is the value that the 17 million people who probably heard that speech at some point in time get inspired to actually do something mm. uh, and i think you have to say the value is the latter not the former mm. uh or at least the, you know, like maybe like i i can't think there are very very few speeches uh that once done everyone is like oh that is a problem we will solve that right now yeah uh, that's just not the case. You know, even the greatest speeches of all time, do, you cannot say that d- did that. It was what they inspired afterwards. Right, right. Um, uh, Kevin, I wanted to ask uh, you if you thought that um, th- this sort of thing is, is still effective. I, I mean, this this particular clip, uh, I agree very much with what Stefan just said, um, but this clip is is, is very uh, famous and it's, it's still played and, and referenced frequently within the environmental community. But do you think that today people going out and making this sort of like, hey, this stuff matters and I want to live in a bright future. Do you think it falls on deaf ears? Do you think it's like people understand it, but have sort of subjugated it in their brain saying, yes, 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 I care about uh, nature, but right now I'm worried about my job. Or, we, or do we still, or, or is this sort of thing sort of still effective, do you think? Was it ever effective? <laughs> like, you're asking, is it still effective? God, has it, has it worked yet? Um, compare Compare the urgency of that speech when she made it to arguably the substantially more the greater urgency that speech would have today and then say you know okay so between then and now things have not improved certainly our sensibilities have not improved uh in any in any you know demonstrable way and you know we like to think we're making progress and buying into you know some sort of burgeoning environmental sensibility but you know again you just sort of look at the track record and say you know, we're we're just we're just not really making progress. Like the point being, that speech is you could make that speech today, and it would be just as more, it would be even more relevant today than it was then. So, uh, you know, is anyone listening? I don't know. There, you you cannot you cannot in my opinion you cannot you cannot make an appeal to to people on an environmental sensibility uh, at at any level. If it's if it's too loud, it's shrill and hysterical. If it's too quiet, it just gets drowned out. Um, you know, any, anyone who just wants a, a wake-up call, uh, Google for the Millennium Ecosystems Assessment, which was published in 20, uh, 2005. And one, there's a line from the summary that just says, um, you know, we've been studying the, – the report was – the New York Times referred to this report as – and it was a four-year study initiated by Kofi Annan, uh, who is the head of the UN – and it and the, U, the the New York Times referred to it quite accurately as an exhaustive inventory of Earth's life support mechanisms. So you don't even have to read the whole report. You just have to know two things: 
people don't undertake an exhaustive survey of life's, Earth's, Earth's life support mechanisms thinking it's all good news. <laughs> you, you think there's a – that's the kind of thing you do when you think there's a problem and you want to investigate it. <clears throat> so these people went into this thinking – we probably have a problem. We need to put some metrics on this and get some data and, and, and you know, get some results. And, and they came back shaken. They, they were just shaken by what they found. In particular, all of the authors of this study, all of the researchers, were essentially appalled by, by how fragile life in the oceans is. Um, and there's a line from the summary, the summary, the introduction to this report that says the, the future ability of Earth, the, the, the ability of Earth to support the life of future generations of humans can no longer be taken for granted. So we just can't assume the planet's going to continue to support life. Like, let's translate that a little bit. Again, that, that was 2005, deaf ears. Uh, this, the, the, the article I referred to last week, we've exceeded, by a new study, we've exceeded four out of nine fundamental planetary boundaries that are necessary to support life on Earth. Again, you, how chilling are these statements? And and you know, there's no, there's no level of urgency. You can you can come out as as a team of researchers making this like sober, utterly dire pronouncements like these ones, or you can be you know at the other end of the spectrum, people who are like somewhat maybe on the shriller end. <laughs> but there's just there's just there does not seem to be any way to pitch this message. This is like what I'm trying to get at. There simply is no way to pitch this message that it gains traction. Certainly not that it gains traction at a pace that will in any way outpace the problem. Mm. Well, we're going to go to our music break. I just want to throw one quick comment on top of that, which is part, part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that, that compared to immediate concerns, I think it's, it's part of that problem, right? People, It's not that people are entirely heartless and, and don't have any reaction to that sort of information or, or that sort of speech when we're talking about the speech we just listened to. Um, it's it's that they're, they're seem, it, it's easily forgotten uh, because of more immediate-seeming problems. And I think the other thing is, is too, is just that I, to be slightly less and simultaneously more cynical at the same time, um, is that it's also that people recognize, well, I have no idea what to do about this problem. So That's, it's useless yeah, it's, for me to worry where's, about it. Where's the front line in this war? Right. Where's, you know, who you, do I give my money to? What button yeah. do I press? You know, where, well, who do I vote for to make this go away? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. And, uh, you know, I and, couldn't agree more. And I think yeah. that's part of the problem. We're going to go to our music break now. We'll be right back. We're, we're, we'll switch in, and we're going to listen to something a little bit more contemporary, uh, which was a very amusing, in my opinion, uh, clip from Elizabeth May. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5. We'll be right back. This is Darren Kaster, host of The Green Majority. Green Majority is now so much more than just a radio show. You can learn more about what we're doing and find out how to support us at greenmajority.ca.
right. And we are back. Thank you very much to uh, everyone who's listening with us so far. And, and I forgot to thank, of course, our wonderful syndicates who are, are not listening to us live or are podcasters online, people who are streaming it off the website on SoundCloud. Thank you, uh, everybody, for tuning in each and every week. Uh, Neil, uh, would you please inform us who we were just listening to? Yeah, Darren, that was Dan Mangan, and the song was Vessel. And uh, he has an interesting line in there that he, he uh, repeats in the chorus, and it says, it takes a village to raise a fool. And it sort of like just shares the message that we are all complicit in the problem and we're all involved or necessary for any solutions. So it kind of ties into the conversation you just had. Thank you very much uh, uh, each and every week uh, for your contribution, uh, Neil, uh, who's uh, running the board the entire time the, that he's uh, not ghostly appearing in as, a, as a voice. So thank you very much for your <laughs> efforts. Uh, we're going to go uh, pretty much uh, directly now to a clip. So I'll just set it up here. So again, this was Elizabeth May on rising greenhouse gas emissions during the adjournment proceedings, which is a 30 minute period preceding adjournment in which members uh, of the of, uh, uh, members of Parliament can raise questions they asked during question period that they did not, in their opinion, receive a satisfactory answer to, or written questions that have gone 45 days without response. So, uh, to, because you can't see the visual here, this was put up by the Green Party, of course. Um, uh, and uh, you, I should should add uh, two things. One, uh, Elizabeth May has a giant sarcastic grin on her face the entire time. So just, imagine, just try and imagine this. And two, uh, this is after the regular uh, uh, the part of the uh, of the process. So this is basically an empty room. There's basically only Elizabeth May and the person that she's speaking to and, and the uh, uh, and the the Mr. Speaker person that they're always having to direct their comments to. Uh, there, there's basically just those people. This is everyone basically has left this room. That doesn't stop this from being hilarious, in my opinion. So here we go. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's my honor to rise this evening in adjournment proceedings to pursue a question that I initially asked uh, earlier in September of this fall, and it deals with the issue of Canada's greenhouse gas record. Are emissions rising or are they falling? And I, th I think these adjournment proceedings, giving us more time, do allow for something of a tutorial I'm going to start actually by reading my full question and then reading the answer I received and that gives us a, a framework to explain why I want to come back to this point because I think it is important and I want to make it very clear that I believe that all members of this place want to get full information and deal with numbers that are accurate. So what I asked initially, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it slightly, was that I heard in an answer in question period, before I asked my question on September 22nd, I heard the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Environment, who I see is in the House tonight, and a good friend, that he had said that greenhouse gas levels are falling. And then he said that that led to a significant reduction in greenhouse gas levels. What I said was, if the Prime Minister's office had consulted the Environment Canada website, it would know that neither of those statements is correct. Greenhouse gas levels have been rising steadily since the end of the recession and are slated to end at 734 megatons by 2020, which is less than one half of 1% below the 2005 levels that the Prime Minister had committed would be reduced by 17%. And what I asked the Parliamentary Secretary was to, to find out if the Prime Minister's office would check Environment Canada's website before writing the talking points to be used by Conservative Parliamentary Secretaries and Ministers. Now, my honourable colleague, the Parliamentary Secretary, said that since, to, quote, 
Since 2005, Canadian greenhouse gas emissions have decreased 5.1 percent, while the economy has grown by 10.6 percent. Now, here's what I want to put to you, Mr. Speaker. Both statements are correct. One is an attempt to explain, and one is an attempt to confuse. My statement, I believe, was the one to explain, and the talking points from the Prime Minister's office were designed to confuse. So let me explain. Greenhouse gas levels in Canada fell to a low point right during the recession. And after the recession, 2009, greenhouse gas levels fell below 700 megatons, fell to 692 megatons. That's the lowest they've been in some time. Now, what happened was, as soon as the recession was over, greenhouse gas levels have been rising. They've been rising ever since 2009. So when I hear honorable colleagues say they are falling, are falling is a statement that would lead Canadians to believe that they were currently falling. Now, in terms of the actions of this Conservative administration, I really do not believe the Prime Minister wants to take personal credit for the economic meltdown of 2008, nor do I believe he had any responsibility for it. Yet that is the reason greenhouse gas levels went as low as they did in 2009. Ever since then, as the economy has recovered, greenhouse gas levels have been rising and are slated to go from, as I said, around 692 megatons in 2009. They are steadily rising and are slated to be at 734 megatons by 2020. And that means we will completely blow the so-called Copenhagen target. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of the Environment. Mr. President, the bilan de notre gouvernement est clair. Nous avons pris des mesures décisives sur l'environnement tout en maintenant une économie forte. Through our sectors-by-sector -sector regulatory approach, we have already taken action on some of Canada's largest sources of greenhouse gas emissions, including the coal-fired electricity and transportation sectors. As a result of regulatory measures, Canada became the first major coal user to ban the construction of traditional coal-fired electricity generation units. Canada already has one of the cleanest electricity systems in the world, with more than three-quarters of electricity in Canada being generated from non-greenhouse gas-emitting sources such as hydro, nuclear, and renewables. Canada's system will be even cleaner. Emissions, uh, sorry, with the stringent new regulations, Mr. Speaker, Canada's system will be even cleaner. Emissions in the electricity sector are expected to fall by 46 percent by 2030 compared to 2005 levels. En ce qui concerne le secteur des transports, nous avons annoncé en septembre, en septembre, que notre gouvernement procède à mise en œuvre d'initiatives supplémentaires pour couper la pollution atmosphérique et réduire les émissions de gaz à effet de serre provenant d'automobiles et de, de camions. Ces mesures nous permettront de réduire davantage les émissions, les émissions de gaz à effet de serre et d'assainir l'air de, des Canadiens et des Canadiennes. En, en raison des de mesures gouvernementales dans le secteur de tra, des transports, les véhicules à passagers et les camionnettes construits et vendus en 2025, émettront environ la moitié des émissions de gaz à effet de serre 
des modèles de 2008 et les émissions modèles de véhicules lourds en, euh, de 2018 seront réduites de jusqu'à 23%. Our government is also taking action on climate change in other areas. Last month, we announced that Canada will move forward to regulate hydrofluorocarbons, or HFCs, which are potent greenhouse gases. Canada will be aligning these new regulations with regulations proposed by the United States. In doing, doing so, we will be taking preemptive steps to reduce and limit harmful HFC emissions. Our approach to climate change protects the environment and supports economic prosperity. Indeed, Canada's greenhouse gas emissions have been falling and the economy has been expanding. As reported in Canada's National Inventory Report, between 2005 and 2012, total Canadian greenhouse gas emissions decreased by 5.1%, while the economy grew by 10.6%. More recently, emissions have remained steady since 2010, while Canada has seen economic growth of 4.4% over the same period. Furthermore, Canada's per capita emissions are now at their lowest point since tracking began in 1990. Mr. Speaker, our government is working to ensure that we achieve results for Canadians and the environment. Our approach will lead to real emissions reductions, maintain Canada's economic competitiveness, and support job creation opportunities for Canadians. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Honourable Member for Saanich Gulf Islands. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I don't know where to begin because now we've heard it again. The Honourable Parliamentary Secretary says greenhouse gas levels have been falling when the opposite is the case. Ever since the economic recovery began after the 2008 meltdown, greenhouse gas levels in this country have been rising. That is clear on any chart or graph that one examines on the Environment Canada website. They're on their way up, not down. And throwing in per capita measures is merely a shell game. The population of Canada is larger, so per person one can say that our emissions are lower. But the reality is, the per capita, we're one of the world's biggest greenhouse gas emitters, and that's nothing to be proud of. It's time to stop the Enron accounting. It's time to pay attention to the warning of scientists. We need a comprehensive plan that tracks Canada to reduce emissions substantially before mid-century, to leave a lot of hydrocarbons in the ground, as is required by science, and ensure our children have a livable world before it's too late. The Honourable... All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, I, um, I, I don't think there's too much to, to, to say about this clip because I think Miss May nailed it. I was making like, in, in case anybody heard me, I was making snap noises in the background. <laughs> she kills me. Uh, and so one of the other things I, I sort of always uh, feel like I have to say as well, which was as a reminder, mm -hmm. we're entirely nonpartisan. I don't actually have uh, any sort of special place in my heart for the Green Party or any other party. But Ms. May personally is amazing. <laughs> and and if other people, if other politicians from any other party started actually speaking um, as if they were real human beings who were reacting to a real situation, who were actually concerned about their constituents, I would support them too. Uh, so that's all I'm going to say about that clip. Uh, but I'm sure, uh, guaranteed, uh, Kevin has at least a I told you so uh, to say. Uh, I was wondering if, Stefan, if you had a quick comment first. It's it's funny. The, the, the two things that were highlighted there were like are the classic things that drive me absolutely insane. Uh, the number one thing is is by starting camp by 2005 and saying it went down. Like like I love it's it's the epitome of lying through graphs or looking at it like it's like you can just draw this line down in this one place and then pretend that's how it works. 
It's like it's it's if it's it's literally grade. I don't know when you start doing graphing, but I'm pretty sure it's like grade three math that you can realize how to align. Like, and I guess line of best fit probably comes in grade six. Uh, and it's just it's 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 it, it borders on uh, absolutely unbelievable that the government is basically willing to say, well, this is a lie, and just giving it to you, and he's like, and then just walking away. Uh, and it's just... It's, I forget where this came from, but it feels very uh, appropriate. Uh, I'm stealing this from somewhere. Truthiness? Yeah, that's Colbert. Ah, uh, yes. Thank you, Colbert. Um, Again, thank you, Colbert. Yes. Uh, uh, but, um, but yeah, and, and, and then the second thing is, is, is what I love is taking this taking this thing. We're moving to regulate HFCs. No, you're not. You're, mov- you're moving to, to follow Obama regulating HFCs. Kicking uh, and screaming. In, in the exact same way that you did when, when the United States decided to, add, to add, bring in HFCs 20 years ago. Uh, it's... It's, it's. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kevin, before we go to our to our second uh, music break here and, and move into the final section, did you <laughs> did you want to add a, a ditto? Uh, yeah. This sorry stuff and cracks me up. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, this is the clip I was thinking of, and that is Colin Carey, the parliamentary secretary to Le- Leona Gluka, who is you might not know this, our minister of the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one, she's invisible. And, so, sorry and, for a point of fact, just to make it absolutely crystal clear. So, the, Elizabeth May was referring to the very website of the person that she was speaking to. Well, the well, so the yeah, um, so it's, okay, so okay, so to back up a little, so uh, this is Colin Carey. Uh, he's the parliamentary secretary to Leona Gluka. Uh, I, I watch a lot of current affairs shows. I, I, I think I watch all of them. And I can predict with 100% accuracy what Colin Carey will say to any question on any show, uh, a current affairs show, where he is being pitched questions from a, a moderator about the environment. I just get the order wrong sometimes, but I can predict with 100% accuracy what he's going to say because he reads from the same set of tired, 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 ridiculous talking points, like they all do. I mean, that's why I call conservative MPs Harper avatars. They're not individuals anymore. They're just trained seals repeating talking points from the PMO. Um, and and th- this angers me, uh, <laughs> not for the obvious reason, even though the obvious reason angers me, but because any journalist by now has had more than enough time to fact check these talking points, They're more than enough time. And they, she, she, Elizabeth May is, as far as I can tell, with one small qualification, uh, and it might just be my inability to research this problem, but with, but I agree with her one hundred percent as to how she is dissecting the ridiculousness of these tired, ridiculous talking points. If you go to the Environment Canada website, um, which is weird, if you start looking for this information um, about just simply trying to find data on Canada's uh, carbon emissions. Um, the first things that turn up in your search, which is a little suspicious, is data about our intensity, our carbon intensity. And it's funny, why do I have to go digging for the unmassaged reality of emissions as opposed to having them divided by economic output and, and to, to produce this intensity measurement? Um, so so I'm not, I can't convince myself. What, what appears to me to at least be the case here is that, is that everything is true. The emissions were rising up until the recession. Then they then they went down uh, during the recession for the obvious reasons. Then they rebounded, not to their previous levels, and at least since about 2010, they've been roughly stable. Now the data are not the, the data for this always lag by a year or two. So you know when I went looking, I found stuff up to like 2013. 
Um, so to say that they are falling is demonstrably not correct. They are not falling. And then to also, like he did, try to take credit for any of the measures by which we have been, you know, reducing emissions at all. Uh, none of those were federal initiatives, and, and like Ontario co- closing their coal-fired power plants. The, the feds tried to sink that stuff or at least ridicule it. Um, so they're not falling. We don't, at least right now, I couldn't convince myself that they're actually increasing. They're, they're sort of on a, on, a, on a plateau at the moment. But without a doubt, the projections from Environment Canada are that they are going to increase. And, and we are not going to come anywhere near to meeting our Copenhagen commitments and those were as watered down and, and anemic and as inappropriate to solving the problem as you as as could be possible. Like those targets, even if we were to meet them, would be just you know the proverbial drop in the bucket. Um, but uh, but but you know it, you know if by now this is this is the failing of mainstream media, which is just kind of toadying up to government in so many ways. People fact check these talking points. If you can't predict what Colin Gary is going to say by now, uh, you're just not doing your job as a journalist. It, it's not hard. I can send you the script and I can send you the rebuttals. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it there. We're going to go to our, our final music break here and, and come back into the home stretch where we're just going to talk about uh, last night's episode of the uh, car- called Carbon Commitments uh, of the Agenda with Steve Pakin right here on the Green Majority CIUT 89.5. We'll be right back. Oh, this poor and lonely heart It is made of pure steel And you can't let it cry We are back here. You're listening to the home stretch here on the Green Majority. Before we get into our final uh, brief topic for the show, Neil, would you please tell us what we were listening to? Yeah, that was uh, St. Paul and the Broken Bones, and the song is called Half the City. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Neil. And, and again, not just for uh, playing the music for us and running the boards, but for picking the music. So if you enjoyed those, all credit goes to Neil. If you didn't, then all blame goes to Neil. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so the final little thing here I just wanted to mention was, so, so a listener uh, uh, brought this to my attention that, the, that this was going to be on. This was a show called Carbon Commitments. It was on uh, the, the agenda last night with uh, Steve Pagan. Uh, I did not see it. I want to make absolutely uh, clear that I was not able to see the episode, but I was simply alerted to its existence. Uh, it had three guests to, to discover carbon pricing for Ontario. Uh, one of them was Elizabeth uh, DeMarco, uh, who is a senior partner at a uh, law firm. Uh, I don't know much about her other than the fact that I'm really not entirely sure why a lawyer is involved as like I, I understand why a lawyer would be involved in this conversation I'm not sure why sh- a lawyer would be one of the three people you would want involved in this conversation uh, but the other two uh, one of them is Nicholas Rivers who is actually at a uh, very good event uh, hosted uh, in part by uh, for our grandchildren and citizens climate lobby that I was at this week uh, it was supposed to be moderated by Stephen Lewis and then a, a last minute uh, emergency prevented him from attending uh, however I was there filming and it was still maintained to be an excellent event uh, Nicholas was one of the speakers at that event, and he is—he uh, knows very much what he's talking about, um, and he was a, he was a good presenter, um, and I, I'm sure he contributed some very interesting points to this dis- uh, discussion, uh, which of course I was filming it on behalf of CCL, but it will be going on our YouTube channel, so mm-hmm. you'll be able to watch the, the talk uh, with Nicholas um, on our YouTube channel soon. Uh, it'll be coming out very shortly. Uh, the final person I just wanted to talk about, though, was uh, this Candace Malcolm, who is the Ontario Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and the reason I wanted to bring this up was because. <clears throat> Uh, this is, by all accounts, uh, as far as I can tell, because, of course, they, no one will actually put this on their website, um, but incredibly slick, uh, tons of fancy people uh, who are, you know, heads of law firms and uh, and stuff who are on their board of directors. It has every mark of what would be des- could be described as a astroturf group. It seems it seems highly questionable that this is a the the, the actual type of group that is presenting itself to be. Uh, but just for context, so it's not just sort of a case of uh, you know I don't agree with what they had to, uh, with what they say because while I wasn't I didn't see the episode I I read up quite a bit on uh, Canadian Taxpayer uh, Foundation um, and there. One of the things that really jumped out at me, one, was that uh, aside from the fact that all their uh, board members are fabulously well-connected and rich, uh, but also the fact that one of them is also the the head of the global organization, which really jumped out at me as to why you would have a Canadian taxpayer federation. Okay, great. So uh, uh, let's say it was legitimate. It's a group of people who uh, want to talk about uh, taxes, and it's a citizen group in Canada. We'll take them at their word. Fine. What connection would you have to a global group? That seems to me to be pretty indistinct, pretty clear. Uh, and unmistakable evidence that this is industry funded because what other group would have international interests in tax rates? Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, though, was that uh, so I went to their website and they have the organiz- uh, campaign uh, page, one for each province and then some federal stuff. I won't go through all of it, but I wanted to read the one for Ontario because it was very interesting. So this is this isn't uh, my choice selection of their priorities for Ontario. This is the extent, the full extent of their of their priorities for Ontario right now. Number one, no carbon tax. Number two, axe the travel tax. Number three, dismantle the Green Energy Act. Number four, reject the Metrolinx tax hike. And number five, balance the budget. Now, I changed the order there intentionally because the hilarious one was 
cut services, cut taxes, cut services, cut taxes, cut incentives for green energy, and make sure you balance the budget while you're doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so just uh, – I didn't really want to talk so much about them. I don't, I don't think they deserve any more attention than I've already given them. The, the reason I, that I thought it was useful to bring up, though, the, the quick conversation I wanted to have with the last eight minutes that we have on the show here um, was the simple fact of how are people supposed to know – where these ta- where these these points of view are coming from? I mean, uh, I have a pretty good BS detector, and and my alarm bells went off immediately. Um, but and it, it's very hard to to look up into the background. It's very hard to look up into the funding of these sorts of groups. Um, and and the and the other fact is they're immediately legitimized by people like Steve Pakin and his producer t- producer team having them on as if they're just another you know citizen voice that has an equally valid point of view and not what they by every piece of evidence I can find appear to be, which is yet another industry group trying to parade itself as, as some grassroots group. Uh, I, Stephen, go I, ahead. I have, I have a life hack for this. Do it. Uh, if the, the word taxpayer is in the <laughs> name, uh, that's the problem. Uh, I've never or, or family or family. Uh, if you, you, if know, you have you, a family of taxpayers, yeah. it's just, we're all over. Um, like I, I, I wrote some notes when you're reading that just because uh, I want to get this one thing across. And I think it comes down to the central tenet of the, of what, whenever I hear these organizations, my biggest issue with every time, uh, is that it seems to me that if every organization, the word taxpayer in it are all jerks, there's, there's, that's, that's how I understand every organization taxpayer. Uh, there, I've never heard of a taxpayers for helping your friend out. Uh, that's not, that's not a coalition that exists. Uh, it's just not. Uh, what exists? Is, Please don't kill Kevin Farmer on air. Stefan, Stefan. wins again. Uh, another week. Uh, another like, week. Yes. The, the trophy goes to Stefan. Um, but like, so, so, I, just, I think it, it's, and it comes central down to how you see yourself in society. Uh, if you are a taxpayer, you're not a. You're, if you're a taxpayer first, you're not a citizen. You're not a human being. You're a taxpayer. You're a business unit uh, within this system. Mm. That is how you. That's that's not that's not just how someone is seeing you. That is how you are representing yourself. You are saying that you know what I am. I am a part of a cog. I am a cog in a machine, and that is I will demand my actions for this. Uh, and so it comes down to <laughs> like being a taxpayer completely reduces your responsibility to the government. It just says the response. The government owes me something. I owe it nothing. Yeah. Well, and the other implication, and, and sorry, I want to let you continue, yeah. but just to jump in for a second, the other implication here too is that the people <laughs> Don't that interrupt this. <laughs> the, the, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry, Kim. The, the people that uh, that elected the Ontario government that got in a carbon tax that, that I don't, I don't I honestly I don't know much about the travel tax, so I don't have much to say about that. But the the Green Energy Act, the carbon tax, the people that are pushing for a carbon tax, uh, the people that are pushing for Metrolinks, the the insinuation here is that these people weren't taxpayers. That, that, that this was imposed on you by some sort of left-wing, you know, oligarchy, uh, and that real citizens should fight against it mm-hmm. when that's well, not no, real, true. Not real citizens, real taxpayers. Right. That's the key here. Uh, and it, 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 come, it comes direct – I had a conversation with a friend of mine recently about the idea of responsibility and the idea that uh, you, responsibility is not is – not, people understand responsibility now as a burden when responsibility is, to some extent is also a privilege. Mm. If you feel responsible for something – you are in some way in, of ownership of that thing. Uh, and responsibility can be used both ways, but our society only understands responsibility as a burden in the same way that taxpayers only understand themselves as they get things for what they're doing. It comes back to the same reason why businesses, are, governments are treated like businesses. It's a central problem of how we actually see ourselves in the first place. And that's so that's why if the word taxpayers in the organization also Kevin we should really restart the organization taxpayers help your friend out uh, I think I think it's a winner 
<laughs> taxpayers for a better society. <laughs> uh, Ooh, that socialist snowplow just went past my home, and now I have to, I don't know, deal with it. <laughs> so so we have, Kevin, we have four minutes left, and, and I just reminded me of something that actually came up after we were filming with the uh, Professor Foote interview. Um, so in, in three minutes, I, I just wanted to invite you to to bring back up that that talk about the, the, uh, the uh, I believe it was the NFL uh, as both the perfect harmony of a socialist uh, example of what's held it up as as the American uh, thing is sort of as sort of relevant to this. Just about how people think about what sort of capitalism means and what helping other people means, and how people so frequently don't understand that things that we love are actually done in a way that would be technically closer to socialism, and that that's not a bad thing, and that we should you know helping other people is good and helps us at the same time. But can you just uh, explain that example? Yeah, I don't know if I can do this bre- quickly or not, but it's it's like an idea I've been noodling around with for you know some time now is this notion about what is the role of competition in society, and we like to say that you know capitalism and uh, industry and business these things are based on the notion of unbridled competition, and that unbridled competition always produces the best results, and then we've borrowed from you know the example of evolution to say you know this is this is nature it's natural but we've borrowed that concept in this sort of this 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 way that is is a concept known as social darwinism this business of like it's it's a dog eat dog world out there even though dogs don't eat other dogs <laughs> and it's it's like you eat what you kill it's winner take all and and we have this notion that the 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 role of competition in society is to eliminate your opponent it's to eliminate them and uh, you know i think i i compare that to other things like a theater troupe where, you know, as a theater troupe, you're trying to mount a production of some show. And then for the purposes of mounting that production, it might make eminent sense to have fierce competition for the, you know, the sort of the choice roles. That might just improve everyone's game. That might raise the level of play in the troupe. Everyone's just working harder to get the better roles. But then someone comes along and makes a decision and, and assigns the roles, and the play goes on. And the people who didn't get the best roles aren't eliminated from the troupe. <laughs> the troupe goes on and then later mounts another production. And, you know, that would be, that to me is a term I'm exploring, at least for my own purposes, as some kind of constructive competition, where the, the goal is just to raise, is to define the game in such a way that competition raises the level of play, but doesn't eliminate players from the game. <clears throat> and a weirdly good example of this is the NFL. They, uh, um, they, they engage in a lot of revenue sharing because some teams are in very, what they call poor markets and some teams are in great markets. And in the past, they used to teams that could spend endlessly on their team, on their players and whatnot. They just won all the time. And and teams from poorer markets, they just couldn't afford all those great salaries, and they were always losing. And so over time, they've engaged in revenue sharing, which has created great parity among all the teams and raised the level of play. But also in their terms, it's raised the level of their product, which is what they're selling, which is really good competitive football games, right? So, um, and the, the the thing to notice is that the goal is to get to the playoffs. But the teams that don't get to the playoffs aren't eliminated from the NFL. They're back next year still, and they are—they all share in revenues, some of which were generated by airing those playoffs, right? So they got eliminated from play in a sense, but they're still—they're still kept within the system. They're still kept in the game. They weren't eliminated from the game, and this is one weirdly interesting model of how constructive competition serves to raise the level of play in the game but it doesn't eliminate the contestants. I think that's an excellent place to stop and something to think about. That's been it for the Green Majority this week here at CIUT 89.5 and all of our wonderful community partners all across the country. Have a great week, folks, and we'll see you next week. 